This is part two of the One Accords podcast on eschatology. We are picking up where we left off. So if when, whenever we get Eric back here, um, an important category for us to sort of uh, think about, if I can just interject this really quick, because we all believe there are, there are future things that are going to happen in accordance with God's promises. We, we all agree with that. Uh, I would even say that there are certain aspects of the reign of Christ that that uh, that are not in full swing right now. Um, so, like, I'm very much in agreement with Joe. There has to be some sort of future consummation. Of so, these. why why then, if you agree with that, why then would we spiritualize so many of these other aspects that you that you said uh, on their face seems so clear that this is requiring a literal physical manifestation in geopolitical Israel. Oh, and, and my, my reason for that is twofold, uh, because so many of the promises seem to have an inaugurated fulfillment. Now that's, that's a, a category. I think we have to get straight, whether you're dispensational or non-dispensational is an inaugurated, an inaugurated eschatology. There is some sense in which I think all the promises of God for the future are inaugurated now in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So even things like, like when you see the Old Testament prophecies about the restoration of Israel, the pouring out of the spirit, the final judgment, the day of the Lord, the rebuilding of the temple, the regathering of Israel, all of those promises swirl in the same context and are often just given right on top of each other and crammed in together and given in these beautiful ways. But what I think actually happened because of the way the New Testament alludes to and directly cites these promises, I think in the death, burial, resurrection, and enthronement of Christ, there is an inauguration of all these promises, even the day of the Lord, even the final judgment, even, and the outpouring of the spirit is clear. I think that the enthronement and the throne of David is clear. We've all agreed on that. But um, all of these things have some sort of an inauguration now because because the age to come and the age of Messiah's reign has collapsed in on us in the present. So, um, so starting so, from that foundation, and let's say I agree with you because I do, uh, I would even use that exact same terminology. I do believe that, that this was an inauguration of the kingdom. And so, uh, you know, as, as uh, a text we haven't mentioned yet, but from, you know, we read part of Peter's uh, proclamation on the day of Pentecost. He quotes from Joel even, you know, these, these seemingly clearly apocalyptic eschatological, you know, the day of the Lord. And he says, this is that. Um, I view that, and I, I borrow this terminology from another brother in Christ who first introduced it to me. I think he explained it well, that it's kind of like a parade. And so the, the parade has begun. And as the parade continues now, we are in the last days. And so this, uh, the resurrection of Christ is proof. He is the first fruits that everything that God has said is going to take place. And so with all of that said, it's, uh, it seems like we're in agreement. On what basis would I have exegetically, hermeneutically to then negate these seemingly clear promises that there is a literal fulfillment eschatologically that when he says that he will reign on earth, that that means, well, he reigns in heaven or he will reign, you know, in Jerusalem. That means, well, he'll reign from, from heaven because Jesus said that he said, let's pray, Lord, let your kingdom come to earth as it is on heaven. And it is not on earth as it is in heaven. Right. We do not see it fulfilled in those senses. We don't see the nations streaming to the to the Messiah and, and, and 
you know, banging their swords into to plowshares. We see strife in the Middle East. We see people rejecting Christ all the time. I was out witnessing last night uh, at a, a, a gathering of witches. And my goodness, these are not people who are... I shouldn't witness to, to no, those who are in darkness. Gather with witches, um, but. <laughs> oh, I was there to, to call them out of darkness into the light of our Lord uh, in love, to tell them that uh, the Bible declares that none who practice witchcraft uh, will inherit the kingdom of God. But if they'll repent and believe upon Jesus, that they too can receive these promises, which are not just for us, but for them and for all who are far off, as you guys quoted, right? Because our Lord in all of his authority told us to go and do those things. I know you're in agreement with that. And so while we currently live in this, uh, this, this dispensation, where Christ does have all this authority, um, why would that then negate a coming day in the future when all of these things would come to earth in a sense exactly like what he what he talked about? And Eric, welcome back. I, we lost you mid-sentence there, so uh, I'm uh, happy to see you back. But, um, hang on, Micah's going to finish this, and then we'll turn it back to you. I don't think it does negate an earthly reign. Uh, I think that there's... It, in a sense, the, the inaugurated aspect of these things is Jesus is the ruler of the kings who are on earth. But I think that the eschaton can serve as the final earthly fulfillment of the eternal reign of Christ with his people. Mm. I think that those, those kingdom promises, uh, because they predate even the nation of Israel, because this was never just about one nation being formed and one nation being redeemed. It was about all the earth being redeemed. Those national promises to Israel play their part in this larger thing, which is really the redemption of all the cosmos. So the reign well, of Christ I, on the earth after he comes, after the final judgment with his people, um, like I, I see that as a very, a very real category. I think he will reign on the earth. I just yeah. don't see it in this sort of intermediate 1000 year kingdom. So the reason that I reject that view uh, is I do not view the millennium and the eschaton as compatible because we have um, competing imagery that only a, a literal millennium and a, an eschaton can answer. Things such as, um, you know, people continuing from Sabbath to Sabbath, uh, from seasons to seasons, years to years, um, promises that are made that in this, uh, you know, this kind of what we would maybe call this realized eschatology, that there would be no more stillborns uh, and that, you know, someone who dies at a hundred will be considered as still dying in their youth. Um, that says that people will be having birth and dying. That is not any of our views of the eschaton. And so to, to, to merge those things together, I view those as completely incompatible. Uh, and I would reject that as a category of, of being a possibility um, from, from my view. But um, Eric, you were going somewhere and I want to give you that. And then um, I do want to give just some specific uh, uh, thoughts about um, where kind of Micah started us from. I know it maybe the, the moment seems like it's passed, but there are there were very specific verses that I do at least want to give some um, a counterpoint to because I, I don't want to leave those unaddressed. Uh, and then we should probably think about winding this down as we've gone uh, uh, on uh, significantly lo longer than our normal issue. And, and as you guys all know, if we don't try and cap it off, we could uh, we could literally be here until next week uh, uh, and still not get to the end of all this. So, um, Erica, uh, you we, I'm not sure if you know exactly where we lost you, but you didn't really get into the meat of, of anything that you were saying. So if you want to go ahead, start again. Yeah, like Micah, I also teleported. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I think, um, I think that my, my, what I'm going to lay out now might help with, with why, why uh, the, your, your, your view, Joe, of the, of the future reign of Christ and my view of the reign of Christ are, are incompatible. And I think that, 
the, the biggest thing, um, there's, there's several, several things to consider, but the biggest thing I think is in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul lays out this chronology. And he says that Christ is reigning right now, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And I, I take that to mean that's the time uh, when all the dead, the dead in Christ are going to be raised and they're going to be, they're going to become immortal. When, when people, when the believers are immortal, that's when death is abolished. Okay. But so Christ will reign until then, until that time. Uh, and then it says uh, in verse 27, for he has put all, uh, all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is exempted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So this is how I see it. When, when Christ comes back, it's, it's not to gain more authority. And it's actually, it's, it's not even to reign in a superior way than he's, than he's reigning now. When he comes back, he'll go from reigning beside his father, which he's doing now, to reigning under his father. He'll be in subjection to the father. That's what Paul says. So there, there, it's, it's not that he has a more glorious reign in the future, although there is a, maybe a sense in which that's true because all of his enemies will be subjected to him at that time. But, but, he is, but at that time, he'll, he's, he'll reign in a different sense. He'll still reign. His kingdom will still last forever. But he'll, he'll reign in a different sense in a more subordinate way, according to what Paul's saying here. So that's the first thing I would say about that. Um, so premillennialism teaches that the saints will reign with Christ after he returns for a thousand years. I think in the New Testament, what you see is that the saints, in a sense, are reigning right now. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't reign at all in the future, but it just means that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6. We're in the kingdom of God right now. We are uh, striving to to spread the kingdom throughout the world. So there, there is a sense in which saints are reigning with Christ right now uh, in the heavenly places. Um, premillennialism teaches that Christ... Uh, actually, let me, let me go back here. Premillennialism lays out this chronology of events. So it, it teaches that there are two resurrections, a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the wicked. And these are separated by the thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, the consistent teaching of Scripture, though, outside of Revelation, is that there's one general resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked that takes place at Christ's second coming. There's not two resurrections separated can by you show me one, years. Can you show me one passage that uses the, the number one with a resurrection? The number one, no. The idea of one, yes. Daniel 12, Well, two. see, this is, and this is where, yeah, and I, um, this is where, Whatever our starting point is, I believe that Revelation 20 is clearer than you guys have said, and that as the capstone of this, when it gives these two resurrections, every verse that you're about to give, it says that there is a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And to me, there's no reason why there couldn't be a delay of a thousand years between those, just because like what Micah said, and I, I think, Eric, you had dropped out for a minute, but he was talking about all these Old Testament passages that we've all seen that kind of swirl together in the same context. I, I believe that you guys would give some some credence or at least uh, uh, have some grace towards the disciples and anybody else who lived at that time who misunderstood that there was a separation between the first and second coming of Christ. 
because many of these Old Testament prophecies that seem to speak of the the, the realized eschatology, uh, like a, a, a Malachi is a good example. It seems like he's going to come, and then judgment's going to be there. That he's going to judge the nations, and that this is it's going to be like the it's going to be the end. And so then, but then we have this this he's cut off, he's dead, he's resurrected, and now we're going on almost two thousand years between the first and second comings of Christ. Even though many of these passages seem to indicate that they're all speaking of the same thing, and so when we see God's timeline as He talks about the future. Um, it is not uncommon for things that I think we agree on to see a separation of time. And so then for them to say, well, there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked for those who, you know, will die long before it doesn't, they don't need to describe it. Then revelation 20 comes through and he, it does, it makes it explicitly clear. And I have no reason to interpret revelation 20 uh, and say, well, those ones say one when they don't, when this one says that there are two resurrections, a first resurrection, and then another resurrection at the end, um, every verse that you're about to give me, I, um, and you can list them. I, I think it's Daniel 12, uh, Daniel 12, two, John five, 28 to 29 and acts 24, 15. Um, Cause you had shared those earlier. with me before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are your verses. I'm, I'm just reading them from the from what you yeah. shared with me. Yep. Um, as I go back and read every single one of those, I don't think that Revelation 20 um, is in contradiction of those. I think that every verse that we read can be better explained in light of Revelation 20 instead of reading Revelation 20 and saying, even though this says that there are two, that there must be one in a text that doesn't actually use the number one. I have, well, it, it, let it, me it ask you guys this. So, like, when you, when you from from your own perspective. You uh, would say, okay, well, we-, we Are you talking to me or Eric? Yes, yes, yeah, Joe. Okay. Uh, you would say, well, there's we'd see a res resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So there's some kind of bifurcation in the resurrection already from the Old Testament. Was th th That's what you would say? I would there's say that- kind of there's I would say that, yes, there is there. It would have been probably understood by most in the same way that we could. There is a day coming when everybody will be raised. Is it the exact same day, the exact same minute? When he says the, there is an hour coming when the dead will come, is it the exact same hour? Those are presuppositions that we can read into the text that if I go back and say, well, does it say that there's one resurrection and they will all be raised simultaneously? Um, I can understand but, why people well, would view it that way. Can, can I, but, can but, I it, but, it's, but the resurrection is used in the, it's, it's always used in the singular. It's always speaking. But they singular. are both singular events separated by a thousand years. There is right, a it, resurrection, a the resurrection of the, of the resurrection and the wicked. It's all it's always it's 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 talking about a, a, a single event of both but the resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous. And the, I think that's the most natural way to take it. And you interrupt. But I, I disagree, especially in light of Revelation 20. And well, so and again, uh, whether 20, that is a hendiatus, one thing through two descriptions, or whether it's two separate things that are separated by a thousand years, if we didn't have Revelation 20, I can agree with you fully that maybe, yes, without Revelation 20, that would be the most natural way. But we but, are but so blessed to have the completed Revelation okay. that when we read Revelation 20 and I go back and review it's the same thing as saying, well, when they thought that the, the Messiah was coming and they thought he was going to establish the kingdom right then, even on the day of his ascension, they said, are you now at this time establishing the kingdom to Israel? He said, no, like you still aren't getting it. I can understand why they didn't get the separation of time, but because we have Romans 9, 10, and 11, for example, we have the benefit of hindsight and we can read back. And so uh, I would just disagree. And, and if you take it that way, fine. Um, but then it causes you to, in my opinion, take less clear texts and interpret a more clear text, which again, I hear that you're saying, you think I'm doing a, a less clear text and more clear text. And that's, that's ask, fine. Can we I can, jump in we can make that both ways. Real quick. So, so we've all, we've actually touched on Ephesians two already. Um, and I'd be interested to hear from all three of you. How do you incorporate the idea of 
how many resurrections there are and you know, when they are. How do you incorporate the idea that um, there is a spiritual truth that says we have been raised from the dead? We've already experienced a resurrection. How how does that play into your system? I mean, as as this is why I don't want to prioritize spiritual truth over literal, you know, fig, you know, physical truth or physical truth over uh, spiritual. Um, we are sanctified, but we're working on our sanctification. We are saved, but we will be saved. Um, we are raised with Christ. Our salvation in Christ is secure because he is the first fruits. He's already been raised from the dead. But we can inherit the kingdom in this state. We have to be changed. So that's, that's how I would answer in the briefest of, uh, briefest of ways. My, my question for Joe is um, to, 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 to kind of uh, see, see if there's an internal inconsistency in, in your view of the resurrection. So are you saying that the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous are what is separated by 1,000 years? I think that that is the, the very plain, literal teaching of Revelation chapter 20. Okay, I have a follow-up. Um, but even you have to deal with the fact that, according to your own view, well, unless I'm assuming something, there are believers who will die in the millennium, who will be raised at the end of the millennium with the unrighteous. So it can't just be that this thousand years is what separates the resurrection from the righteous from the unrighteous, because... There, you believe there will be believers who are born in the millennium and will grow up in the millennium, will die in the Lord in the millennium. Yeah. So there's this period of time where there's already resurrected saints. There's people being born and going to their respective fates. Mm-hmm. And and the, fi- the, re- the second resurrection, if you would want to term it that way, I don't know if you would, but the, the next phase of the resurrection, if you will, is going to include both righteous and unrighteous. So it can't just, and even on your own view, it can't just be a separation between the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Yeah. No, you're making a fair point. And um, again, I'll speak only for myself, not for anybody else. I don't think that there's anything inconsistent in, especially the passages that, you know, Eric, I wasn't trying to steal your thunder of quoting the verses you were about. To, and I, and I, I'm sorry that if I cut you off, cause I, I still want you to make the points that you were going to make. That's fine. Um, the, uh, the, the specificity about the reality that Christ's resurrection historically in the past for all of us is proof that someday all will be raised. What Revelation 20 speaks about is, yes, there is a bifurcation between the first resurrection, and it's very specific. Blessed are those who take place in the first resurrection. These ones who are raised at this point, um, they will not taste the second death. Uh, I do agree with you that if my theologic, you know, theological position is correct, that there, there will be some probably even who are righteous, um, who will die in the millennium. I think that though, mostly those who die in the millennium time will be unrighteous people, but, but there will be some who potentially could die in the kingdom of God in that literal thousand year reign. And so the second resurrection, when we read about it now, it's, it's everybody. And so that one is more general in the fact that the sea gives up all the dead that it's in it and everything and the books are opened and everybody's judged by the deeds that are in the books. Um, I'm not sure that anybody who went through the first resurrection will take part in that judgment, but maybe they will. Um, however, those who are raised at the end of the millennium, um, yes, I, I do agree with you. There will be both righteous and unrighteous, and it's specific about that particular resurrection that there are some whose names are found in the Lamb's Book of Life who will not be cast into the lake of fire. So I don't think that the bifurcation between those is saying that there is a exclusive righteous uh, resurrection and then an exclusive 
uh, unrighteous resurrection. I think what it's saying is that there is a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody will be raised. And I think that the first resurrection will only be righteous people. The second resurrection will be primarily unrighteous people, but there also will be some unrighteous people as, uh, as well in that one. So again, I don't think that there's anything that would contradict that. Um, although I do understand why, if you guys think there's only one resurrection, why you would still not be persuaded. So regarding the exact imagery of Revelation 20, and I think that you would you would agree that it's imagery. We would just give different concrete explanations for for what's going on here. But regarding the imagery, there, there's a little bit of overlap between what he says here and what he says in previous elements of the book. For instance, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And I'm just going to sort of give you the reason for my interpretation of what the first resurrection is, because there's two views, even within the amillennial camp, generally speaking, there's the first resurrection being our regeneration now in Christ, where we're joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. And now we are in some sense, positionally seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We're raised with him. We're somehow exalted with him now, but not yet type of thing. Um, but then there's another view, and this is the view that I hold, honestly, I believe that Revelation 20 refers to the intermediate state where Christ reigns now with with departed believers from heaven. And the re, part of the reason is because there's overlap in the imagery between Revelation 20 and Revelation 6 with the souls under the altar. Notice it's the same. And maybe I'm importing too much into this. Maybe Joe would say this, but it's a repetition of the words. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Well, what's happening in Revelation chapter 6? In uh, the, uh, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. They were each given a white robe and told the rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, who are to be killed as they themselves have been. I see these as the same group of people. I see these as the martyr saints who are slain for the word of God. And what's being pictured here is their victory in their coming into the presence of the Lord, which is the beginning sort of foretaste of resurrection life for them. Um, they're coming into the presence of the Lord. They're under the altar. There's this priestly imagery, but there's also this kingly imagery. They're robed in white. They're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. But it seems to be important that John says he sees the souls of these people. Yeah. Um, and, and these are the same souls that he saw earlier. So I think that there's at least significant overlap there, which is why there I is a capitulation. I, I, I do think that there's significant overlap. And yet here, what we see in Revelation 20 is that those souls come to life and yeah. we use this word, the first resurrection. And so I'll ask you the same question that Greg asked, uh, you know, uh, Eric a, a few episodes ago. Why would you view that that is re regeneration if that's not the word that's used? Why would you view this as as some spiritual thing when the terminology says that the souls, the, these people that, that are that God told to rest a little longer until the full number comes in? It seems like now the full numbers come in here in Revelation 20, that as time has progressed, now these souls come to life. 
they were dead. They were slain. They came to life. Jesus uses the same terminology in this book, also in overlap, saying, I was the one who was dead and behold, I've come to life. And so well, this is all. What accompanies the, the, the cry in Revelation 6, though? And this is why I don't think this, that Revelation 20 can be the fulfillment of Revelation 6. Uh, what accompanies that cry? Uh, it, it, their cry is, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little bit longer. Um, I don't think that this can be that because the time when God judges and avenges their blood is the final judgment, which you would say this text isn't following. Um. I mean, in some sense, there is a judgment, like the eschatological coming of the Christ to slay his enemies. And so, you know, judgment can take on a, a, a full eschatological uh, end times, raised, uh, judged, thrown into the lake of fire. It can also take uh, on just a ending of your a cessation of biological life. And so when Christ comes, puts his feet physically on the Mount of Olives and uh, the battle of Armageddon happens and he destroys all of his enemies. And then he raises these into the millennial kingdom where we will see a realized eschatology at that point of, uh, you know, actual peace on the earth for a thousand years. Even those who are in rebellion against the Lord will only really be so inwardly and the devil will, you know, come and, and, and gather them together. Um, you know, they, then they get to reign for a thousand years. So the, yeah, no, I don't think that this is the end. I think this is the beginning of the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, we see this, but, but again, like I said, this, this terminology so naturally within the book of revelation coming to life, um, it's speaking, unless we're going to say that Christ's raised being raised to life was spiritual. Um, this is a physical raising to life that, that resurrection always means resurrection in the new Testament. There's no reason to demand that a, a spiritualized or allegorical approach to these things. Um, because the timeline that, that I'm suggesting, again, the earliest timeline, the, the, the Kilias timeline, um, you know, regarding ignoring the, the, the tribulation period or whatever else, or whether the rapture comes before it, all still thought that this was the case, that there would be a resurrection of the righteous, that Christ would reign on earth, that people would enjoy these things, not in an idealistic sense, but in an actualized sense, something that has never come anywhere close to being fulfilled uh, in history up to this point, that there is, I mean, Greg talks about optimistic, uh, premillennial campaign. There is something so much better coming. And then the eschaton's even better than that. I mean, we have so much to look forward to. Um, and they're resting until this happens. Persecution will continue to happen. Christ will come and, uh, you know, slay his enemies. Uh, the Prince of Peace comes just by, by dipping his robe in blood, not by his own blood, which he came by the first time, but in the blood of his enemies. And that's the judgment that many people were expecting of this Davidic king to come and conquer. All those who refuse to accept the gracious offer of salvation now uh, and persist in their rebellion, uh, Christ will slay himself with the sword of his mouth. Um, and then there'll be another rebellion at the end of the, at the, end of the millennial kingdom, but that one is uh, brief. This one seems much uh, leading up to it much more uh, distinct. So again, speaking so, for myself, that's how I yeah. take it. These, but these these saints are talking about their blood being avenged. So like this must even have reference to people that in the experience of the seven churches, they've already died. They've already been yes. slain for their faith. Yes. Um, so there's this picture of them crying out saying, when will you avenge our blood? When will you judge the people who killed us? Yeah. Well, those people have been dead for 2000 years. So yes. like, so it, this is a, even if you do hold to a chronological, uh, order between revelation 19 and 20, which I don't, even if you do hold to a chronological order there, you have to say their blood's not being avenged. 
it's maybe it's someone else's blood, but it's certainly not all blood. I think I mean, the only way you can take that is final judgment. Yeah, I, I, I guess I just I disagree. Um, to me, it is their blood, uh, even if they have to wait for a while. That's why God's telling them to be patient. I think that they're crying out in the same way many of the psalmists cried out, many of the way the people in the, the, the national kingdom of Israel cried out. How long, O Lord, will you allow, um, you know, the way they were crying out when they were in Babylon? How long, O Lord, will you will you allow this to happen? So that's been the cry of God's people for a long, long time. And there is a, a future judgment coming. And yes, the fullest fulfillment of that, yes, at the end times, when they're even raised uh, and then cast into the lake of fire. But the the idea that he will be avenging them and, and bringing uh, furious wrath upon the adversaries, um, I don't find those to be in conflict. But again, I, I, I hear your point. I don't want to get too far off. Uh, you know, Eric, you you were going somewhere and I was rude. I interrupted you. And uh, and then we kind of went into this, uh, this digression. So um, I want you to finish your point. And then again, I have we do need to wrap this up. Uh, I think uh, I, I really enjoy talking with you guys. I'd love to to stay here forever, but uh, I am curious if anybody will still be watching uh, two hours into uh, sounds uh, the like conversation. purgatory. Are we, yeah, are we supporting that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Eric, please uh, again. I, I cut you off, so uh, please forgive me. That's okay. You're forgiven. Um, let me just give you the abbreviated version now of uh, of what I was going to say earlier because we're going to have to. Like, right now, we're trying to wrap up. So I, I don't see two different resurrections separated by a thousand years. I don't see two different judgments separated by a thousand years. Um, I also don't see uh, in Scripture that Christ returns and a thousand years later he brings about a new heavens and new earth. I see that in Second Peter chapter 3 where the language is, un, I think, undeniably clear. And I know that dispensationists will simply say, no, you're wrong. But I think Second Peter chapter 3 clearly spells out that... Uh, when Christ returns, that's what brings about the new heavens and new earth. They don't happen a thousand years later. Um, so uh, there's there's those things. There's countless other things. I think that I think at the at the root of this, I see that if you take Revelation 20 literally, you end up with endless contradictions that you have to resolve. I think it's easier to 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 begin outside of Revelation with the what I think are clear verses, especially First Corinthians fifteen, which makes it impossible to take Revelation twenty literally. Um, I think if you if you do that, then I just um, I, I disagree with you very strongly on that. I know yeah, Michael well, is not in his head, but yeah. Well, I think that I think in First Corinthians fifteen, Paul actually lays out a a chronological sequence of events that limits sequence. Yes. Yeah, it, it's a chronological sequence with certain time indicators that make it impossible to, to have the separation of a thousand years. Like in Such in, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 and 24, when Paul um, when Paul talks about uh, this, this I'm going to get there real quick because I don't have the verse in front of me. He says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits and after that, those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end. Now, now. Uh, dispensationalists will often say, well, the word then, that 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 represents a, a long thousand-year period of time between these events. So Christ returns, and then comes the end when he hands the kingdom over to God the Father. So they would they would say, well, th this handing over of the kingdom, that's, that's a thousand years later. So verse 23 is describing the return of Christ. He sets, his, he sets up his kingdom on earth, reigns for a thousand years, and then verse 24 is the end when he hands so you're saying over. it's a are you saying it's immediate i'm saying that every time the word then is used uh in scripture in this way every single time it's used it always refers to a very short and in some cases an instantaneous uh 
period of time. Are you, if you, if, are you sure you about at, that? Well, if you look at the word, I think it's, I think that's the consistent use. I think that's, that's the, now could it, is there, is there one or two exceptions? I, I don't know, but I think consistently the word then means immediately following. This is, this no, is I mean, there, happens. there is a, there is a word that means immediately and it's not used. There is a word that means soon, which we talked about before, but for us soon means different things than it means for God. This particular, but notice, but notice what, but notice what happens though. Notice what happens when, when Christ comes back. Okay. Notice he's reigning. He's reigning until he puts his enemies under his feet, right? He's yeah, reigning. Amen. He's, um, when he comes, he hands the kingdom over to the father. Now, why does he hand the kingdom over? Well, he, because Christ has been for, for all this time since he's been reigning, he's been preparing a kingdom to hand over to his father, basically like a gift. Right. So he's preparing the kingdom. He's he's uh, so when he comes back, by the time he comes back, he raises the dead. He puts all of his enemies under his feet. All these things happen at the same time. And then well, again, the kingdom, that's a, that's going too far. Well, but the, but, the, but the reason he the reason he does that, the reason he, all these things happen at that time is because he's preparing the kingdom and getting it ready to hand over to the father. And, and then he submits himself to the father's authority. If you, if you look at how Paul is laying out this chronology and he's limiting what can happen you know, a, after these things, he's limiting he's, the idea that there's going to be a thousand-year earthly reign of Christ after Christ returns, and that after the thousand years, then, all, then Christ's enemies are fully, um, you know, they're fully dealt with, they're fully thrown into the lake of fire. Um, then there's a new heaven, a new earth, and then there's, then there's a judgment of the, you know, yeah. during that time, there's a judgment of the wicked. That that chronology, I believe, is completely ruled out by, sure. I understand. by the language that Paul Paul uses here in First Corinthians. And I know you've read the notes, Joe, and we don't have time to well, go I did. All, and these, so, all these notes. But, you know, but and I, I, and I appreciated you sharing that with me in advance. That. Yeah. Uh, I think that this is an area, again, where I, I just I, I, I submit this to you in love. I think that you're going beyond what is written. And, and I understand that, um, you know, if we have a presupposition about, uh, and I, I don't think that your presuppositions are worse than mine, right? I, I, like we talked about before, we can we can push back on each other's you know uh, particular views. Um, I don't think that Revelation twenty is unclear. I think that anybody who reads it, I think that it's I think it's very clear. I do think there are parts of Revelation that are more unclear, but not every single thing in Revelation is difficult. Um, a lot of things you, are just. Let me ask you this, Joe, just to, just about Revelation twenty because I I didn't really get yeah. much to Revelation twenty. Well, I know we're talking so, about First Corinthians fifteen, so I, I wanted to get. To, I have thoughts about that, but okay, okay, go ahead and ask your question. Yep. Well, okay. So, do, do you, if you're taking Revelation twenty in a strictly literal sense, and I think Micah when he when he mentioned, this, there's the souls of those who had been beheaded, and they're they're sitting on thrones. Is there is there any way to to look at that as these these are souls? These are not these are not embodied souls necessarily. It doesn't really say that they are. And it doesn't even say that they're reigning from earth. That 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 no, they're in heaven. That, yeah, that isn't really that isn't mentioned there. And it also says that Satan is going to be falling in a bottomless pit. He's, so Satan essentially is going to be free falling for a thousand years, wrapped up in a chain. He's going to be he's free falling, and then after the thousand years, somehow he's just he's pulled back out after this free fall, and he's he's set loose to to wreak havoc on on the people of God. Do you do you? Is there anything that like where you, you read this and you go, maybe there's a chance that this is not speaking literally like with. Is, is it, do, you, do you think it's possible 
that, that these things could be interpreted in a, in a non-literal kind of way. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, as I talk with you guys, as I read through what you've, you know, you've presented, I read other positions that, that take a more spiritual, uh, spiritualized or, or allegorical or metaphorical type approach or something else. Um, I, I do put on those lenses and, and read it. Um, and I just, at the end of it, I, I take them back off and I go, no, this isn't, this just doesn't seem right. I think that that means exactly what it says. And for those who would say, again, the position on millennial, right? It literally means no millennium. It's, it's a position similar to where, and I know Micah holds the impassibility, but we talked about this where we agree. We say we, God's angry. And then there's a position that says, no, he's not angry. Okay. Well, here's a position that the Bible says that there's a millennium. It's a thousand years. And we go, no, there, there isn't. This, That's this, the this cheapest position. shot, Joe. Well, and I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, that, I'm that, not, I mean, listen, I you, you can, millennial. The amillennial view is not a view that says there is no millennium. That's, that's what the that's name of ridic- it means. I, well, okay. It means there's no literal um, words thousand are year by more than That's all it means. Well, right. But I mean, when you title it, it's titled that way. That's not well, a cheap I didn't, shot. I didn't, I didn't write the title. Right. Words words are, at the end of the by, day, there words is... Words are defined by more than their etymology, though. I, I so, don't know but that's anybody where it, who's ever histor- argued for the amillennial position that says... Well, what what we're try, what we're trying to communicate in that name is no millennium. So it's it's just a it's an then, then, unfair, ridiculous argument. The, well, the, then where the, does it where does that name come from? The the t- the title amillennial is specifically designed to rule out a specific type of millennium, which is why if you go back far enough in history, the 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 conversation is not between um, between amillennialists, postmillennialists, and premillennialists. The conversation is actually between postmillennialists and premillennialists. Well, because again, I, in I, fact, every I disagree. In fact, every amillennial is in some sense a postmillennial. They, we believe that there is a reign that is happening right now, and Christ yeah. returns after that thousand-year reign, whatever you take right. that thousand years to mean. So, so it, like, is a, it, is a re- it is a rejection of the initial predominant view, which, Micah, your reading of history is the same as mine. There was a predominant view at the beginning that there was a literal physical fulfillment of this millennial reign on earth, and the amillennial view is a rejection of that literal fulfillment. And so it is a rejection of that. That is where the name came from. The, the etymology isn't like, oh, this is just a happy coincidence. It's not a cheap shot. That is where it came from. And so the argument, everything that I'm hearing from you guys, everything that you're, that you're saying that I hear is in some ways a saying that is this, I mean, that's the question that you just asked. When I, when I read this and say that Satan's bound for a thousand years, is there anything that causes me to say, well, that doesn't mean that he's actually literally bound for a thousand years, that it could mean something else? To which my answer is clearly no. I think that it means exactly what it says. I think that that imagery is specifically talking. And let's, let's keep that imagery in mind for a second. If that is literally being fulfilled now, because there is no literal future millennium to come, but we are currently in the reign of Christ, if the devil is bound now, then why do we have so much discussion post-resurrection, post-exaltation, post-ascension of Christ in the current age of saying, watch out for this adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour? Why do we well, so mu- see so much about people being, John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That to me does not at all and, fit and, with and the John idea also, of, a, of an enemy who is bound for a thousand years well, who will John, be released at some future well, John time. Said, John said that everyone lies in the power of the evil one, and he also said Christ came to destroy the devil's work. So it's it's not there's not a it's right. not a there's not tension there. It's bound oh, doesn't mean bound is he not? sitting somewhere doing nothing within Revelation that, twenty. Sorry. 
Go ahead, Michael. Is he is he bound within, or is he not? Within Revelation 20, it says he's bound with respect to something. It's to deceiving the bound. nations. He, it's, it's, he's bound with respect to deceiving the nations. But when you actually get to him being unbound, what is it that happens? He, des- he actually fulfills that plan, deceives all the nations, and has them gather against the people of God for battle. What is, and what what I is, think, so so here's, my, here's my interpretation of the binding of Satan. I think that in some sense, Jesus did come and he plundered the strong man's house. He used the word binding the strong, the words binding the strong man in his first coming. Matthew um, 12, 29. The, exactly. And so, and it's repeated in, in other gospels as well, in all the synoptics. Um, so he did come and bind, bind the strong man, but he bound them with respect to something. What happens after the exaltation of Christ? The Great Commission, the preaching of the gospel of the nations. And in some sense, Satan is on a leash and God isn't letting him gather all of the nations against the church to wipe her out right now. There will come a day, and this is why I'm more of a, a pessimistic, a millennialist. <laughs> My man, I do believe. I do believe. There is, Good for you guys. I do believe there is coming a day when Satan will. I'm pessimistic about the future of the nations, not the future of the church. Um, yes. Amen. Uh, but there is coming a day when I believe Satan, God's what God is not allowing him to do because Christ is exalted and because the, He's fulfilling His will through the Great Commission. Um, and that's in that sense, I take the binding of Satan. Well, he's going to allow him to do what He's not allowing him to do right now. The gospel is going to, to to stop making its way through the nations in the way that we see it right now, and it's going to the the restraint element of it is going to just hands off, and I think that's going to happen, and I think Jesus is going to return. So well, I, I, I hear that. I just I don't think that that's better than the premillennial view. I, I do think that all of the contradictions that that are supposedly coming they, they come actually out of the the Amil camp because we have to spiritualize things. We have to look at something that the text says and say, well, what, what, what does this mean? And, and so that, that even that terminology, that sequential terminology, Eric, this is where, where I was starting. I don't think that it limits anything about the time and that, that particular, um, uh, sequential marker. Um, there are many places in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus uses that same thing uh, with the parable of the sower. It talks about those who um, who initially believe, but then when trouble arises. we Should we believe that in every single person, trouble immediately arises? Could it be a year or two years before trouble arises, before persecution arises? I think that that is obviously the case. You think of, of someone like Damas, who is a biblical example, someone who started off, went with Paul, accompanied Paul, and then it was the worries of this world that and the love of this world that caused him to leave. So then something happened after a period of time. In Mark chapter 4, verse 28, that same thing is used. Then, well, what's it being talking about? It's talking about the seed and then the stalk and then the full head. There's months and months in a harvest time that talk about that. Well, um, but not a thousand years. In First Timothy 3.10, they talk about let them first be tested and then they serve as deacons. It's not an immediate testing. And James 1.15 is another place that talks about sin. When well, it's, and, and when Joe, it, like when I it's said, conceived, though. then it gives birth, which is imagery for, for at least nine months. So the idea of, of, of thinking that it has to be immediately... Um, well, it doesn't have these. to. It doesn't. Like I said before, it, it 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 sometimes it is immediate, but it doesn't have to sure. be. It doesn't have to be instant. And, and right. to say, well, then you know, to say that that it's it it can be a you know a few, a month or something. That a month is quite a bit different than a thousand years. It, it is, it's but a, it's also it's, a, it's, it's also a quite a bit different short than period of time compared to a thousand years. I, I agree, but nine months is also a relatively long period of time when compared to instantaneously. And so, again, neither of the the assumption of the the temporal markers, 
uh, is not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about a logical sequence, a, a chronological sequence. And when we assert our own timelines, we muddy the waters. Well, he is laying Joe, this out, is... this happens, then this happens. And we both agree that that is the sequence. I just think one happens longer after, but we both agree that one happens before the other. And so again, I don't think that that, that is a, uh, it's not a proof text in the sense of, of, of thinking that it, it compels me to, to then reinterpret Revelation 20, which says that there is one resurrection, a thousand years, and then there's another one. I don't know what text could be clearer as far as actual temporal markers and why I would get rid of something that doesn't include time. This is, and, and again, maybe you guys will think this is a cheap shot. This is the exact same type of argument that gets people to end up in old earth creationism when we have a temporal marker that says a day, morning, and evening, and they go, oh, that means ages. That means millennia. That means thousands of years, epochs. Well, no, it doesn't. It means what it says. And I'm not going to reinterpret those, but well, some people exactly say, well, that's unclear. Point. That's exactly my point, that, it, that the word then is not referring to a long period of time. It's referring to a short, a short, relatively short the period word, of time. What I'm submitting to you, Eric, is that then is not referring to any period of time. It is a sequential marker, not a temporal marker. And, well, and, and so and it the, is simply saying that this happens and then this happens. The beginning happened and then the end happens. There could be any the, amount of context. intervening time in between. It's, it's the context of the, it's the context that limits the timing of it. When Christ mm -hmm. comes back and all of his enemies are put under his feet at that time, at the second coming, that means there can't be any other enemies that are that are dealt with a thousand years after that. And that's why the word, that's one of the many reasons why the word then has to be referring to a short period of time. It's the context that determines the meaning of the word. No, not, you're, that's an assertion Jesus, that doesn't, it isn't Not required. how Jesus used it in a parable that's unrelated to it. It's We're talking well, about that, the context of 1 Corinthians 15. And, and Paul mentioned other things too that, that that have to happen and all of these things it if, if we take these things as separated by a thousand years then it's it, it becomes incoherent I think I, I think uh, if you I if just you start, I just I just very I think if much you start disagree. in revelation 20 if, and for the reasons we talked about already if you start in and also let me let me say this too in Revelation 20, when it talks about the the, the, the I'm not suggesting that we start in Revelation 20 by the way I, I'm suggesting that we take the whole Bible but well, nothing this, that you, well, sure. yeah, nothing of these verses requires us to take a, a immediate thing. He doesn't say then the end comes immediately. He doesn't say that. Well, I have but, a question but, but for Joe. Okay, go ahead. I have a I have a question for Joe, and and this isn't so much about timing. Um, and I think what this, this this conversation really exposes is that it's at the, at the foundation. This is a hermeneutical question. Yes. What texts are going to be your control texts? What That's why text, we started there, or right. at least wanted to start there. Right. What texts are you going to be your control texts? What texts ex help explain other texts better? And mm -hmm. uh, and how do you weigh those texts? Because I don't think anyone can get out of weighing texts. I think sure. that you have to not only count texts, not only say the Bible says this, 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 and this, and collect the data. I think you have to weigh those texts in terms of their import for your for whatever system you're putting together. Yeah. But um, what I have a what I have a question about for Joe. Is there's you you at least said there's there's still people being saved during the millennium, correct? Uh, I believe that there will be people. I mean, at the end of it, it seems that there's some rebellion, which means there's that some, similar to old covenant, that not all who are participants in that kingdom are genuinely so saved in, or regenerate. So, in some sense, it, God is still extending His patience toward mankind in that state. Sure, I would agree with that. Okay, so but this is why I wanted to get to Second Peter. Second Peter seems to separate the ages between patience of God, no more patience of God. 
no intermediate time where there's still some patience of God. It doesn't seem. Second Peter uh, chapter three, verse eight. But do not overlook this fact. He's talking about the return of the Lord, the parousia. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why is the coming of the Lord delayed from our perspective? Because God is patient. But what is it that ends the patience? What is it that severs that time period of patience from that time period of no more patience, no more salvation being extended, no more God you know, extending mercy, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's why I see, I see the reign of Christ now in the way that I do. I think that redemptive history is put together in a twofold structure. This age in the age to come. This age is an age of God's patience. It's an age of the gospel being proclaimed, but it's still an age of sin and death, and it's still an age of the curse. The age to come is an age of resurrection. It's an age after the return of Christ. It's an age after the final judgment. It's an age of righteousness and the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Um, so, like, my question is, how does the 1,000-year reign of Christ, where, where there is... Apparently, still God's patience being extended in the salvation of sinners in that time period. Sinners, people who are in rebellion to God, are still being saved. Somehow, after the coming of Christ that Peter's talking about here, the day of the Lord, somehow that is still a period of God's patience. When apparently, yeah. according to Peter, the patience is gone. Uh, I think that the eschaton will be the time when God's patience is done and That's even within from heaven <laughs> right so so even in this context the we are as we sit here in history at our current place we wonder lord how can you be so patient that you haven't brought about judgment yet and he uses this idea that as as we count slowness let's take it from the lord's perspective for him a thousand years is as a day and so if when christ returns there's a thousand year period that's him only extending his his patience for one more day from his perspective, in a sense. And we're talking about the day of the Lord. He He's coming. He's not patient with many, but there is still some opportunity and a dispensation that's coming. He's been patient during the pre-Israel days. He was patient during the Israel days. Now he's patient during the church days, and he'll be patient even during the millennial reign. And it is it's astonishing that that uh, that that Adam and Eve would fall, that they would fall from that uh, idyllic state. It's astonishing that the Israelites would rebel against him uh, in in uh, when he was leading them by the pillar of fire and cloud and feeding them with bread from heaven and, and miraculously delivering them through the Red Sea. It's astonishing that in the Christ uh, in the Church age that we would uh, you know people would would rebel against Christ with all that we know. He's risen from the dead. He's given this proof. He's fulfilled the scriptures. And is it astonishing that people even in that millennial kingdom would trust uh, would test the patience of the Lord? Lord. It is astonishing, and yet it's something that we've seen all throughout redemptive history. And then, when the end actually comes, the true eschaton, then it's over. And I don't see anything in here that necessitates that there couldn't be an intervening a thousand-year period. But you're um, talking about you're talking about a period of God's patience after He says the day of the Lord has happened, the heavens have passed away with the roar. When what distinguishes these periods of time in Peter's thought here? is that now is the age of patience. Now is the age of the proclamation of the gospel. After that, there's this cosmic deconstruction, and apparently the day of the Lord, 
I mean, it seems like Peter's talking about the final judgment here. I, no, I agree. There's no, this there's is, no more patience. So, but that's is, after the day of the Lord, after his appearing from heaven, right. which, you know, premillennialists often say the same language is used here in the Olivet Discourse. When it's talking, when Jesus is talking about his com- the coming, his coming from heaven to earth, mm-hmm. the you know the the stars of heaven falling, you know Peter's using that same kind of language, the heavenly bodies being burned up. So I think Peter's talking about the second coming of Christ to I earth. I agree, and I agree. So, but that ends the patience in Peter's well, plot. There's right, more but, patience after that. But if you say as, and Paul says the same thing in First Corinthians fifteen. About destroying right, as, Christ destroying all of his enemies at his second coming, not a thousand years yes. later. No, this is again. This is the issue where I think that um, you know I, maybe I'm not communicating my point. That's fine. I, I don't know if it'll convince you or not. It doesn't seem like it will, and I, that's fine, right? I, I'm not. Um, uh, you guys aren't. You know, it doesn't make you stubborn or something. I'm just saying to to hear the point that I'm actually expressing is that think back prior to the coming of Christ the first time. The language is still, it's, it's incorporating all these things together. And so we're currently at 2,000 years of, of delay. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, this is that. This is the last day. It was inaugurated. The train is rolling, you guys. You know, the locomotive is moving. We've seen the first car of the train. We're, we're watching these things come by, and the caboose is coming. And so t- for whatever reason, it seems so preposterous to you guys that there could be another a thousand years. Um, I don't know why that is. We're already almost 2000 years and counting. And it's so it's not that there's another thousand years. It's that the thousand years that you're describing is characterized by something distinctly different than Peter is telling us to expect. I don't, I just disagree. It, it all ends in a the thousand year place. problem is not a, like, I, I don't have an issue with the idea that there might be a thousand years. Like that, that's not the primary problem. The issue is that that thousand years is characterized by things that I don't yeah. think are supported by the rest of, by the rest of scripture. Sure. No, that's fair. And look, I, like, like I said, you, you know, uh, you're not convinced by my line of reasoning. I'm not convinced by yours. That's fine. I still like you guys just fine. And so I hope you still like me at the end of this conversation. Um, there's a number, <laughs> Craig, there's a, a number of uh, uh, um, points that I wanted to make that, again, just time won't suffice. So I'll, I'll kind of end us with this this last thought. Um, and it's really hearkening way, way, way back, if anybody's still watching or, or, or even saw, you know, the point that you made back in the beginning of kind of what began your move out of premillennial dispensationalism into uh, a more amillennial view, Micah. And it seemed like the other guys were in agreement about this. I've, I've seen that this has this passage has been discussed by other amillennials. And you're right. As we weigh scripture, um, some that, that process begins somewhere, right? Some text really grabs our, our attention or grabs our mind, and we think, okay, I really understand this. And now because I understand this, like you said, um, you started us with, with Matthew 2, and the uh, the New Testament use of Hosea. And so, you know, to you, you said you were almost, I can't remember exactly what word you said, maybe um, borderline offended, scandalized, sure, um, <laughs> by the by the apostolic use of this passage. Um, I know that, you know, everybody here uh, who's, who's participating I'm, is familiar enough with that text to know that you're not the only one, that this is a, a very much discussed passage. Um, many people go to that, that passage uh, in uh, Hosea um, and say the context of this, you know, what is Matthew doing? Uh, he's abusing the text. And so then it opens the door. That, by the way, you, you do or don't? I don't think that he's abusing the text, by the way. Okay. I'm not scandalized by it anymore. <laughs> but but it did open the door, and you correct me if this is a mischaracterization, it did seem to open the door for you for taking a spiritualized um, understanding of some of these Old Testament passages. You use those right. language, that language. I, I don't, I don't want to say spiritualized, because I think that, that 
the way the conversation has developed in the last century, spiritualization has an inherently negative connotation. Yeah. What I want to say is that it, it gave me a different lens through which to view the fulfillment of the promises of God to yeah. Israel. So would you say that if you misunderstood what Matthew was saying and, and what even Hosea was saying, that maybe that would cause your lens, that, that maybe you were wrong to change the lens that you used? Like if you were the one who was wrong instead of, uh, instead of thinking that you now were rightly understanding it? If it, yeah, if I if you could prove prove to me with a, beyond a shadow of a doubt sure. that I was interpreting those texts wrong now, then sure. Well, I'm going to attempt to I'm going to attempt to do that. Um, and I'm gonna, is not my yeah. a dogmatic thing for sure. me. I'm going to attempt to do that, and uh, we'll end here. And um, I'm going to make to you an observation that I it's not original to me. I'm thankful for a brother in Christ who really brought this to my attention, uh, even somewhat recently, actually. And so it's interesting about the timing of how this uh, has all worked out, um, because like you, um, it didn't cause me to to change my eschatological camps. But it, that is a passage that I've looked at often, and, and I've heard the objections, and I've really wrestled with. And um, I, I read a paper that uh, a guy that I um, met recently wrote. Uh, it's not published anywhere. It's just a paper that he gave me. Um, and I've had opportunities to talk with him. And um, he really helped me to realize that um, my initial scandalized uh, nature reading of that text or thinking that Matthew was doing something maybe unjust or, or um, beyond the bounds of what we would call sound hermeneutical practice, certainly if I took texts from the Old Testament and spiritualized them in, in ways that many people accuse Matthew of doing, some people would say, I'm leaving, you know, I'm not listening to this guy preach anymore. You know, you're, you're, you're abusing this text. Um, what he suggested in this article, and I'm, I'm persuaded that he's 100% right, is that we who have we are the ones who've misunderstood the Old Testament. Matthew actually understood it much better, and we've missed the point. Um, in fact, Hosea eleven one is an explicit prophecy, not about Israel, but about Christ. And there are two main pieces of evidence that I want to submit to you. Um, there's no way that you're going to be able to evaluate these, you know, in in, in thirty seconds. So I submit this to you for your consideration. Um, but because none of us here are Jews, right? None. Of, we're all Gentiles here. Correct. Yeah. Um, so we're all Gentiles. None of us have been raised in the old covenant context of, of every Sabbath, hearing Moses read and, and, and having the, the garb upon ourselves, keeping the dietary laws. So we are at a disadvantage often of, of understanding the Old Testament text. Many people, especially in the church, we spend almost all of our time in the New Testament. And so while I'm thankful that you took my advice and began reading through the Old Testament, um, you know, there, none of us are going to think that just because we read once through the New Testament at a relatively rapid pace that we all of a sudden have picked up all the context and all the nuance and, and, and really understand it perfectly. I, I think we would probably all agree on that, that, that growing up in that context, we'd understand it better. And so there are two points of evidence to really consider in Hosea 11 1 the, that, um, that makes us actually explicitly exactly what Matthew said, a direct prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. The first is that the verb is completely wrong. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, it starts, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 talk about this. It's always the same verb. I am the Lord your God who, what is it? You guys know it? Out of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God who, what? Tell Brought us. you brought you, who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of Egypt. And over and over and over again, that imagery, it's the same. You, got, you, you can look it up. It's, it's over and over and over. It's overwhelmingly, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. It talks about God exercising his mighty right hand. He brought them out. He brought them out. He brought them out. He didn't call them out. 
So in Hosea 11.1, 1, if we are steeped in Old Testament imagery, the verb is completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Because everywhere in the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God always says, I brought you out. I brought you out. I brought you out. He didn't just call to them and have them listen. He delivered them. In many ways, sometimes even kicking and screaming. They wanted to go back. They wanted to go back. They wanted to go back. And remember the cucumbers and the garlics and the leek? And well, who is this Moses? Who made you an arbiter and a judge over? They wanted, he brought them out. But Hosea then says something astonishing. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So the verb is completely wrong. And anybody who's steeped in Old Testament um, um, life, they would have noticed it much more readily than us. The second piece of evidence is that what is the imagery, the main imagery that God is using in Hosea? Um, Eric, you brought it up before. It's about a bereaved husband and spiritual adultery. Yes? We agree? Yes. He's talking about Israel, his wife, his unfaithful wife. Why out of Egypt I called my son? All of a sudden, a radical change from feminine wife to masculine, my son. I think that in the context, if we understood the Old Testament the way that Matthew understands it, that this is an amazing declaration that although Israel has been unfaithful, largely, that God is making a prophetic, literal, physical, not applying a spiritual truth about Israel to Christ, but he is making a declaration that could have been missed, and Matthew then illuminates it for us. And he tells us. And when we misunderstand it, we think that he's doing something wrong. It's really us who have misunderstood. And so again, I submit that for your guys' consideration, that you would look into that. You can double check those things. You can see, see if you can find any other place that God says that he called Egypt out. It's always he brought them. He brought them. He brought them. So the verb is all wrong. The language is overwhelming. And the imagery radically changes from my wife to my son. And so if you have misunderstood that verse, and, uh, and then opened the door for some spiritualization or some allegorization, um, I would suggest that maybe the hermeneutic got off there. And as we weigh these things, we realize that, you know what, maybe as they tell us that these things are about the Christ, maybe they were 100% right, and they actually literally mean exactly what they said, and perhaps we just misunderstood them. And so, you know, I, again, uh, Revelation 20, am I saying that Revelation is the clearest book in all Scripture? I am not. But I have no reason to read in um, immediately when it doesn't say immediately. And I have no reason to read, and you know, I, when, when Christ says he's coming soon, his return is coming soon, we all have to deal with that same issue because we all do believe in a literal, physical, bodily return of Christ. Yes? Amen. So it's soon, but, but what does that mean? My goodness, it's been a long time. And I can understand why people would say, well, what is, what is the Lord doing? Why has he not yet come? And I can understand why people would say, where is the promise of his coming? Well, by faith, we're going to trust that it is coming. And maybe it'll be in our lifetime. Maybe it won't. Um, but I do think that we have an awful lot of good things to look forward to uh, in a literal millennium. Uh, and that all those texts that, that say those words, that we're going to let those be the, 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 the arbiter. But again, like I say, I don't know that that is convincing to you, but I submit that. I had other points that I'd like to make. But um, again, I think that uh, I'll give you guys the opportunity to you know, give the last word if you'd like it. Uh, and then we will uh, say goodbye for this time. And for anybody who was watching, who was saying, when are these guys going to finally get into some disagreement? I th you know, it's all so agreeable. Well, here you have it. We finally, uh, we finally found some fireworks. So um, uh, Michael, let's let you go first. You have any last uh, thoughts or, or comments? Again, I hope that you'll uh, at least consider the things that I've said and, and look into them. Um, and uh, but but you have any final words for us today? Thanks again for for coming and being on. So uh, uh, anything that you'd like to share before we say goodbye for today? Well, I just want to thank you guys for having me on and uh, talking about these things. I love to love to talk about the scriptures. Love to talk about the Lord. Um, 
and the fulfillment of his promises to us. Uh, but it, I have loads of things I'd like to say <laughs> about, I have no doubt yeah. about the Exodus imagery and mm. God calling his son out of Egypt and how that forms prophetic expectation for a new. Be careful Exodus. how you use it. Uh, he always says brought, 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 right. brought. So I, I have tons of stuff I'd like to say, but I have too much I'd like to say about that. Mm. So I know I will, I will look into the language there though. And, uh, and, See if see if I'm see if I could be wrong about it, but uh, yeah, well, again, I appreciate that humility, and uh, hopefully this won't be the last time we see it. Will we see you again on uh, on one accord? You think? Uh, I anticipate being on here again. Yes. Well, I I'll add I eagerly anticipate it. So, uh, <laughs> Eric, how about uh, you? You got any last words? I I feel like I kind of uh, um, derailed some of your thoughts, and I, I apologize about that. I'll, I'll ask you for forgiveness one more time because uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. I certainly uh, um, didn't didn't intend for it to go that way. But you have any uh, final final words or thoughts for us before we say goodbye today? You are forgiven, brother. Um, I said about five percent of what I wanted to say today. Um, I actually too, had a, yeah. actually had this long, this long uh, sheet that I, I was getting through some of it, but that's a, that's that's fine. And obviously, we only have so much time; we can only cover so much. Um, I suppose you, we could do a part two if you guys want. If you really wanted to, uh, um, we could we could do that, and maybe we'll start off with instead of starting off with Micah, we could start off with you, Eric. You could get make sure you get through your sheet if we want to do it that way. Yeah, mine amen would to that. Mine would be a, mine would be a sermon if I if I. Uh, covered even half of it, but um, no, I think that uh, I think you know there are disagreements basically on like w- like what is our starting point? I think Micah had said I don't know how you put it, Micah, but it was something about like our key, like our our starting point or our our, our like uh, what we're grounding our eschatology in. There has to be something we're grounding it in, and I I, I think that what we what I ground mine in. Um, is the fact that Christ is reigning right now. I think both dispensationalists and amillennialists would agree with that, although some dispensationalists would disagree. Joe, you're not one of them that disagrees. You, you, you see, I do agree. I agree with you, you 100% yeah. on that, yes. Yep. So you're, you're right on with that. And I think that his reign is going to get more and more glorious over time. So I, I think that if we start with Christ is reigning now, we can, we can build so much off of that. Um, Amen. Now, you said that uh, you had mentioned, um, and I'm, I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but you had mentioned that uh, the the Hosea 11.1, the, the distinctions there, and you had said that the word there's brought and then there's called. I, to, to me, you said it was overwhelming. I, I'm not, I don't think, I don't really think that's overwhelming, but I think it's something to consider. Look and into it. Uh, it is. I'll look into it. It is. It is. Uh, it's more overwhelming than it might initially seem if you'll uh, if you'll look into it. I think, but you can let me know uh, after you've had some time to to look at it. If you sure. haven't heard that before. And you had said that uh, that he he he's, he mentioned son and Israel's elsewhere his wife. Israel's mentioned as his son also elsewhere uh, outside in of, Hosea. Uh, no, but but in, in other in other Old Testament texts where God. It's a radical departure, of course, but it's a radical departure of imagery in the book of Hosea. And so, if we're going to keep things in context, like I said, the Bible's not a uh, a puzzle book where we're supposed to just constantly, you know, bring, he's he's got imagery and then he says something different. And so, um, like I say, I, I would encourage us to to just consider that context. Maybe you won't be uh, persuaded, but ultimately, at stake is 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 Matthew doing something unjustifiable or is he telling us what the text exactly what it meant? And um, again, I don't understand the, the, and I don't say you're doing this, but I don't understand the desire for some to say, no, it, it, you know, he just, he changes, he mixes his metaphors, he changes them. um, And then that makes Matthew kind of shoehorning Christ into a text that he doesn't, 
belong in. Well, and I guess um, the question is, can, can, a, can a verse have more than one meaning? Like, can, can it be talking about two different people or groups simultaneously? And I, I think it's possible that that some some texts do have a, a yeah, dual meaning. Fair. Although we could, you know, we could talk about that another time. But but I, I was I was actually happy to, to see how much agreement there was about uh, about Israel having uh, a you know a, a future. And I think I was encouraged by that. So I, I was really happy that there, there really wasn't all that much, if any, disagreement on that. Yeah. No, amen. Well, thank you for that. And uh, Brother Greg, uh, you got any final parting uh, thoughts, uh, uh, things to clarify? Again, you probably are like all of us, maybe got to 5 to 10% of what you wanted to say. But uh, um, uh, anything uh, that you'd like to leave us with before we say goodbye for today? Yeah, I guess as an encouragement to those who, if you're still listening, congratulations, you've you've persevered. So uh, there's there's something to that. Um, I guess I want to just give you, well, first of all, a word of encouragement. Uh, Christ is king. He mm. he is reigning. He is ruling. Um, there is reason for great confidence. He has given you uh, he's giving you your marching orders. Go out, share the gospel, um, whether you agree with us whether you agree with one of us or, or none of us, um, that's not going to make a, a difference in your eternal state or it's, it's not going to, you know, don't let our disagreement shake any of your uh, confidence in the gospel. Um, and I would say this, none of us and yourselves included are going to come to this conversation without some preconceptions, without some assumptions but I would, I would ask that you do this. If you're going to continue on in your study of eschatology, um, don't pigeonhole yourself into only listening to one school, one, one school of thought, one voice. Uh, try to approach it with an open mind. Um, I, have, I have no doubt that you know, men who I, I disagree with considerably, I have no doubt that they are trying um, to honor God, trying to interpret Scripture correctly. But so, so try to give the major camps um, a fair hearing and then decide for yourselves. And yeah, um, the, the, the arguments presented here are not the best arguments for each position. Um, you know, these are our impassioned views being expressed um, on the fly. So, yeah, do your homework and, and honor your God. Yeah. No, amen. Again, I think that's very well said and sure sounds like at least that quote that you were going, I, you know, I'm the one from that camp and I, I disagree with what they were saying. So yeah, to, by pigeonholing ourselves, uh, we, we need to read the Bible for ourselves and keep in communication and conversation, uh, doing our homework, I think not only includes going to the primary text, but having conversations like these where iron can sharpen iron. And, and um, I'll reaffirm uh, my love for each of you. Uh, again, certainly if I annoyed or, or bothered you, that wasn't my intent. I'm, I'm trying to uh, encourage all of us to uh, think more deeply about the scriptures, I can also affirm that you guys uh, uh, did give me some things to think about. And, and so um, I hope I did that for you in some way. And anybody who is watching, again, if you got value out of this video, uh, you can click the thumbs up button, share, comment, let us know what you think. Uh, let us uh, uh, hear your perspective down in the comments. And until next time, get equipped, obey your King, and glorify your God.